Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host. I'm excited to be back for a new season after a break of a few weeks off. I'm trying to split this year into three different seasons, 10 episodes each, with a little bit of break between them for myself to unwind, relax, and it turns out, just plan for the next season. I've spent a lot of time the last few weeks meeting guests for this upcoming season, planning new episodes, and it's been really great. I'm very excited about some of the upcoming episodes. This week, we are kicking off the new season with Casey Crispin. Casey is the owner and operator of Prema Farms and the Riverside Farmers Market, which is one of my favorite weekly events here in Reno. The Riverside Farmers Market is a year-round farmers market at the McKinley Arts Center. It's on Saturdays in the winter season and Thursday evenings in the summer. We had a great conversation about what it means to be a farmer, how it works, how small-scale local farming is important to building a local food shed, about getting local produce to people. That was the purpose of creating this farmer's market, is to have a way for people to access all of the local food and reach local vendors and artisans, and it is fantastic that we have that opportunity here in Reno. I'm very glad that we have a successful year-round farmer's market, and it was awesome to learn about kind of the behind the scenes, how it all works. Before we get into the episode, as always, Renoites is brought to you by DJ Trivia Nevada. I host Trivia Nights for DJ Trivia at several local venues, and we're always adding more. We have several new venues that have actually just brought us on recently, so check our website, djtrivianevada.com. Search for a location near you. There's a bunch of new bars that are just starting. Actually, this month we're going to be at Black Rabbit Mead, several others. Please check us out, djtrivianevada.com. Also find us on social media to see the venues near you. You can find me on Tuesdays at Sierra Tap House down by the river and Thursdays at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility. I appreciate you coming out to play. It's a lot of fun. It's free to play. There's prizes for the winning teams. That's djtrivianevada.com. Renoites is also brought to you by This Is Reno. With everything that's going on in the world, we all pay a lot more attention to the news than we used to. There's a bunch of different news sources. There's 24-hour cable news. But what we really need and what's really important, I think, is local news coverage about what's happening in our own city. And This Is Reno does a fantastic job of that. Follow them on Instagram and Facebook, on thisisreno.com, and I subscribe to their newsletter. I get the headlines in my email every day, which is a great way for me to keep track of what's going on in town, especially we're coming up on election season. They're going to be doing a lot of coverage around our local elections. Very important stuff, and I'm very grateful that we have This Is Reno here to cover it. Again, that's thisisreno.com. If you have any guest suggestions, any feedback about these episodes, any ideas for topics I should cover, I want to make sure that I am presenting the best guests and interviews that I possibly can, so let me know. Shoot me an email. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. Would love to hear what you enjoy about the show and what you'd like to hear. And with that, please welcome this week's guest, Casey Crispin. Casey Crispin, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Connor. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about farming and farmers markets. I did an episode last year with Jolene Cook from Growing Envy, and we talked a lot about local food and kind of how it helps us have a better sense of community and be more connected with where our food comes from. And you are one of the people who is really doing that work. You are a local farmer and you run a local farmers market. 
So I think you're going to have a lot to say about how we get our food. First, can you tell me a little bit about your farm? Where is it's Prima Farms, right? Yeah, it's actually pronounced Prema Farm, and we're oh, located up by, yeah, don't worry, everyone does it. <laughs> uh, we're located up by Cold Springs, just behind the border town casino, actually, right on the California-Nevada border. Gotcha. And so how big is your farm? What kind of produce do you grow? How long have you been doing this? Yeah, so we are technically a micro farm. We're, we're farming just over um, an acre and a half. And we grow over 50 varieties of organic vegetables. And then we do, oh, I guess 20 plus varieties of organic flowers in the peak season. We grow year round. And this is our fifth year of farming. It's always a little bit tricky for me to do the math because the first year that we started the farm, we all had full-time jobs. So we could only plant the types of crops that you couldn't, you didn't really have to tend to and you could kind of harvest or not harvest and they wouldn't die. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it was kind of a trial year. And that was the year that we really realized that if we wanted to do this, we'd have to go full hog into it because it just up here, you know, farming is a lot more demanding than other more temperate climates for sure. Yeah. Is it, uh, what causes that? Is it soil conditions? Is it the heat and the cold? What's unique about the high desert that makes it such a difficult way to do farming? There's a lot of factors. The most pressing factor is the unpredictable and intense intensity of the weather because you can get a storm out of nowhere or you can get frozen nights out of nowhere. And we're actually growing uh, where we're located is at 5,200 feet. So our microclimate's a bit cooler than Reno. The arid climate combined with the unpredictable nature of our weather patterns, even, you know, for forecasters, <laughs> it's unpredictable, <laughs> right. as we all know. Yeah, it makes it so that you really have to be nearby. You can't be kind of a um, weekend farmer, which some people can get mm-hmm. away with. In more temperate climates, especially in the maritime climates where things are more predictable, their frost date comes at the same time every year. And, you know, even that, of course, is changing with climate change, but there's still way more stability in other regions than there are up here. And it's one of the reasons why we haven't seen a food shed establish itself really ever up here, you know, once it's been developed. So it's really been the last seven years where we started to see more diversified vegetable farms starting to rise up and um, make it and actually stay in operation, which is a whole other consideration because farming is one of those things you can get into and really quickly learn that um, either you're not cut out for it or uh, it's not solvent. Yeah. I I always wonder kind of what the beginning steps are of you talked about this started and then you realized oh this is going to take more work this is going to have to be a full-time thing what was that transition like going from having an idea that you could do this maybe as a part-time thing and realizing oh no like it's all in or nothing right what was that first season like basically where you realized okay this is going to be more than we planned Yeah, that's a great question. So it was actually a group of five of us who became inspired by the idea of starting a market farm. And we wanted it to be an urban farm. We anticipated it being within the city boundaries. Um, And we started kind of finding areas, you know, a lot of homeowners who have decent acreage, you know, an acre plus, tend to be interested in having someone do something with their land, especially when it comes to growing food. So it's not Mm -hmm. very difficult to find plots to farm on, especially as a leasee. We started doing soil tests, and when we realized that the best soil that we found was just over by Bordertown, which is, you know, from 
the center of Reno. It tends to be a 30 minute drive with 10 minutes on a solid dirt road for a while. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we didn't anticipate it to be that far away, but it was kind of undeniable. Not only was it gorgeous and we felt refreshed every time we went out there to do some task, but, um, but the soil itself is really loamy. It's actually kind of like an, an old, old, old ancient alluvial deposit from what used to be a much larger river. Um, and now it's just a creek. And so the soil just is, yeah, it's ideal in a lot of different ways, which is hard to find up here. It's more common when you're starting to farm up here that there's a lot of soil conditioning to do, which we Mm. certainly still had to do, but not nearly as much as if you're dealing with a lot of sand or clay in your soil. Right. Uh, So that first year really looked like the five of us trying to juggle coming out. I mean, ironically, my partner and I, because we do everything (laughs) like the hardest way possible, we were starting a family at the same time as starting this venture. So I was pregnant about to um, have our first child and we were trying to kind of come out, you know, whenever we weren't working, essentially, when we realized that the time commitment to really take it off and the the financial investment, I think we were all just testing the waters to see if it was a viable route that we wanted to commit to um, after being inspired by various books and presentations at conferences. We had always, um, as a group, gone to the Nevada Small Farms Conference, or sorry, the Nevada City uh, Small Farms Conference, which is over in California. Mm-hmm. And um, they have like some incredible headliners each year. And so we, we would always leave so inspired. And then, you know, there we are, hands in the dirt, you know, erecting a greenhouse with so little knowledge about what we were doing. And I mean, so many hilarious failure stories, hilarious now, really painful then <laughs> stories right. from that first year. And by the end of that year, uh, it was clear that my partner, Zach and I, we wanted to go deeper into it and invest more into it. And the other people in our group had just different desires, you know, and and four, which were two different couples um, of the people in our group decided to uh, go like farm abroad and they each went to different countries and they both actually ended up um, settling in different parts of the Pacific Northwest eventually. Uh, And another friend of ours was about to retire and he didn't want to spend his retirement working more than he had for his normal career. Mm -hmm. So uh, he pulled away. And so that was when we decided that we would we would go full hog. So that was when Zach and I really took it forward. And that was in 2017. And ironically, I had had already had our first daughter and Zach put his notice in at his full time job. He was actually working as the produce manager over at the Great Basin Community Co-op which was a really wonderful precursor position for what we were about to get into because he, he got the lay of the land of the local food shed mm-hmm. there. And, um, but, you know, it's starting, starting like a serious farming operation in the middle of the summer is highly unadvised. <laughs> and so you have, you have a lot of preparations to do to have a farm be successful for the peak growing season. And our growing season is really four months long. But um, Zach, by nature, is highly ambitious and kind of has undeterred optimism, which makes him a great farmer. But it also means that he he threw a bunch of stuff into the ground that had no chance of making it with our approaching frost. And he also kind of put out a call to all of our friends that first year you know, who wants to sign up for our CSA, <laughs> which is a very bold move. And we did. We had a bunch of friends sign up. It was very sweet. And we fed them so much cabbage. They are, <laughs> bless their hearts. <laughs> they got so much of the things that wouldn't die in our frosts. And so, yeah, it was really like such a like thrown into the fire situation. And we learned so much in the first. I mean, we continue to learn so much even in year five. It's Farming is um, is a consistently humbling position 
you're always get, especially now with climate change because there's and you know the new fire season is the fourth season there's always mm-hmm. something new that you're being challenged with and confronted in a serious way of you know it's not just like oh you know we might lose this bed of spinach it's like no we <laughs> we might lose this entire farm tonight or today and um, we've mm-hmm. confronted that more than once at this point and there's something that makes you feel alive in that space of um yeah just constantly feeling in a place of surrender to forces that are much larger and much more intricate and much less understood than we are. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that um, that was kind of our origin story. And then Zach and I just continued to grow that from 2018 onwards. And we started the farmer's market in 2018, actually at the end of the summer in October, when we realized that um, we would have vegetables that winter to sell and we didn't have an outlet to sell direct to the customer base that we had cultivated over the summer. So that was one of the reasons why we wanted to begin the farmer's market year round. Oh, excellent. Yeah. No, I want to talk to you about the farmer's market and kind of how you reach customers for sure, because I think it's an important way to kind of connect directly with the community, especially like you said, being part of a small farm. And you mentioned the co-op too, which I think is another way. It's good that we have this kind of local food community. And I've just moved back to Reno in 2017. So about the same time that you were starting the farm. And I have seen much more interest in local food and the farmer's markets. And the Riverside Farmer's Market feels like it has grown over that time. And I just hear more about local food. I think it is, there's a a positive trend generally towards this type of farming, I think. Is that been your experience, not just with your farm, but with the local food community? I know in our restaurants, that's also been kind of one of the stories of the last 10 years or so is that we are starting to see more of local food as a focus of some of the ingredients at some of our restaurants. What's your general thought about Reno changing over the years around our relationship with local food and local farmers? Yeah, it's a really beautiful symbiotic evolution that's been happening because at the same time that there's been an increasing awareness of the various benefits that locally grown food offers a community, be it local food security in a disaster situation or a pandemic that shuts down, you know, distribution worldwide, or be it just from a flavor and nutrition standpoint of having fresher food that has more phytonutrients intact and more vitality to stay longer in your fridge, or from the environmental perspective of not having food that has traveled hundreds of miles or thousands in some cases to reach you. Mm-hmm. And that's at the same time, we've also had interest uh, in regenerative, sustainable, organic methods of farming that are small scale, which is still very fringe compared to the actual amount of farmland in the United States, but is gaining speed in the same way that you see microbreweries gaining speed. And for the same kind of Mm. craft and artisanal quality that those products can provide, right, that you're not going to see from these huge distributor or huge um, operations. And so, yeah, I do. I think that we're a part of that tide and we're excited to bring in farmers. We do a farmer incubation on our farm each season in the peak growing season. Our goal is to really help other local farmers or local people rather interested in farming, learn how to farm in the nuances of the high desert. So learn how to create a greenhouse that's not going to blow away. Learn how to, um, you know, germinate in a way that won't desiccate your plants because your setup is not friendly to the arid climate that we're in, et cetera. Yeah, I do. I think that we'll only continue to see that. And I think that, again, there's, there's really nobody who doesn't benefit from an established sustainable network of small community farms. 
Mm-hmm. So people are realizing that in a rapid way. And I, and the pandemic really helped that, to be honest. I hadn't really thought of the comparison with like microbreweries, but I al- always am kind of curious about the scale of different operations of how we produce things. Because, you know, we're like a growing country and society and city, and there's always this need to produce more and to be efficient. And there's all this technology and that kind of stuff, more bang for your buck and more yield. And that leads to these kind of like big agriculture things. And then the cost of that is pushed onto the environment and onto our health and onto all these other things. And I think it's interesting, this idea of kind of the the right scale for the right city or for the right person, that you can do this, like you said, with like an acre of land, you can do this on a small scale, you can do this kind of stuff locally. I guess the question is, how do you determine like what's the right size of any particular farm or operation or market? And what do you what do you borrow from the advances in technology and stuff? Are there benefits to the kind of technologies and growing methods and stuff that we've developed over the recent decades that can be applied at the smaller scale? How do those things kind of intertwine? Like, what do you borrow from the big farms? What do you make sure that you prioritize from the the smaller and more community-oriented, like, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, like, not hobbyist because you're running a real farm, but more natural or original ways of doing farming. Like how do you how do you integrate those things? Yeah, it's funny. I smiled as you asked, what are we borrowing from the large farms? Because <laughs> in my mind, I thought not really anything. But, you know, when on second thought, there is definitely a standardization to post-processing for after mm. harvest. Definitely, you know, these large operations have fine-tuned to the extreme detail, cold storage and cold chain production. And especially because their operations are very much reliant on wholesale distributions that require that their harvests are good in a supermarket 10 days out. Mm. And so we definitely have borrowed from that because I think that that benefits any type of operation, no matter how small and how short of a distance things are going. It's funny, you mentioned the hidden cost of the current massive farm operations and what that creates for a more efficient food production system. And while there are definitely te- definitely technologies that have been developed for those systems, the technologies that are being developed for micro-diversified farming operations are fairly different because we are farming on a hand scale. And so when you're talking about actual technologies with regards to growing food, the differences are so vast because their systems are based off of mechanized, meaning tractor-based farming methods that use huge amounts of chemical inputs to synthesize fertility and health in the plants and the soil. Whereas a hand-scale, diversified, organic farm, and when I say the word organic, I'm meaning truly organic in the in the um, original meaning of the word, which has sadly been diluted over the years and by heavy big farm lobbying at the USDA. But the ones that are really focused on soil health, the technologies that are evolving for that have to do with how do we improve soil fertility from the literal ground up? Like how do we support microorganisms and colonies of beneficial bacteria, et cetera, that are fixing nutrients so that the plants themselves are inherently more healthy because they have the proper micronutrient profiles so that they're not even susceptible to infestations or disease rather Mm -hmm. than needing to do some topical application as a Band-Aid in a very pharmaceutically minded approach when we are approaching farming from a soil health focus then everything else as a cascading effect is improved from plant health to 
vegetable length in your fridge to nutrition. And, you know, plants are not that much unlike us in that if their nutritional profile, their micronutrient levels are off or are imbalanced, they will succumb to disease. And you see that naturally in the plant cycle. When a plant, kale is a great example because kale can be harvested from and it will literally just grow like a tree upwards and you pull the leaves from the bottom part of the plant. And you can see in your own gardens that as, especially if there's heat waves that can stress the plant out, but especially as the plant gets older, that it becomes more susceptible to disease, like all other organisms that age and slowly decay over time. And and of course, also the terrain, the actual land itself Mm. is going to become slowly depleted of those micronutrients unless you're replenishing it with compost or any other inputs Um, In the forest situation, we're having that cycle occur naturally as leaves fall and things naturally die and compost into the soil. And so those balances are maintained over time through natural processes. So we try to mimic that in regenerative farming and we try to disturb the soil as little as possible while still trying to be an efficient and highly productive farm. And I think the point that I just wanted to drive home for those who think that mechanized large-scale farming is the only way to feed the planet, is that that's not the case. And right now, it's not what's happening. Right now, 70% of the world's population is fed by subsistence farmers. And whether they're focused on hyperproduction, like our small micro farm is, or whether they're just feeding their own families, there's a really strong case to be made about how much food, um, healthy soil, or a healthy earth can produce. And then on the other side of that conversation is what healthy soil offers our global health, our climate health. And there's some really wonderful conversations happening from the likes of Zach Bush or um, many others that are talking about how regenerative farming has this wonderful capacity to not only absorb carbon, but to rebalance the respiration cycle of the earth and help deacidify or alkalize the oceans and so forth. And and those are really pressing conversations that we're really excited to be a part of. Um, In fact, Zach is actually headed to a regenerative farming conference tomorrow and it has some of the key leaders in that field talking about ways that those technologies are not only being developed, but tools that are coming to the market right now from small farmers. I mean, that's what's really cool is that it's not like a huge industrial company that's creating these tools that we're using. It's literally farmers who have been doing this for the last 10 years plus, and they find a retired engineer and they're like, I really need this tool. Can you make it for me? And, you know, they ship it to us and they're, you know, total amateur packaging, but it's this wonderful, really well-built steel tool that will last probably longer than any of us will. And it helps us plant on a micro level. And, you know, to give you kind of a sense of that production that I'm talking about, our our farm, like I said, is about an acre and a half. And we produce more than what you see on an average 10 acre farm that is conventionally grown with tractors, et cetera. And we're a hand scale farm. So there's, you know, there's really no big tools happening out here. Yeah, I think that can kind of give you a sense of the amount of food that can be produced in a small plot. Yeah, that's great. I think that the that assumption that it's always going to be like the more technology or the bigger companies that are able to do things better, the fact that that's not true and letting people know that you can have an impact, especially around, like you said, things like climate change. I think people want to be part of the solutions to these things. And we feel hopeless sometimes. There's like, we can't solve it ourselves. But hearing that it's possible to have positive impacts at that local scale 
matters a lot. And then the thing you mentioned earlier too about supply chains, because I know you you posted something on Instagram not that long ago about how if you think you have food security, but you don't know a farmer, you probably don't really have food security. Like there's a bad storm, there's a fire, the road is closed. It's very quick for your local grocery store, which you think is always going to have food to not have the things you need. We've seen a lot of that with the last couple of years with pandemic. Can you talk a little bit more about just the the food security element of having your food be actually close to you and having the relationships with the people who are growing your food, why that's so essential for um, for true food security? Yeah. I mean, there's a funny saying that's like, goes something like, when everything shuts down, the people who eat are farmers and their friends. And it's actually funnier than that, but I, I didn't nail it. <laughs> but <laughs> it's the idea, of course, that getting to know your farmer means that you are connected to their community. So you know, it's it's not far from any of our consciousness how unstable our global situation is, be it, you know, a new strain of the pandemic or, you know, the awful atrocities happening in Ukraine and them being the largest supplier of grain or any other number of potential catastrophes or global, you know, weather conditions that could potentially cut us off from these lanky distribution channels that we rely on for our sustenance. So, yeah, I don't think that that needs to be developed so much anymore. Although 10 years ago, that was that was the goal of these conversations. So we work with a nonprofit that was started in 2007. It's called Local Food Network. And that's actually now what we produce the farmer's market under. And that was started by a wonderful farmer named Tom Stilley, who started River School Farm in West Reno. They started that nonprofit and they were having these conversations that long ago about food security and about Studies at that point had shown that, you know, if the IED was closed for three days, there would be a serious depletion of shelves. Um, and that's, of course, not even factoring in all the panic buying that happens in those situations. Mm-hmm. But um, but back then it was very abstract and people didn't seem to respond much to it. It seemed like fear mongering and, you know, a little bit too far away from our potentialities. And then flashback to 2020 when we saw a lot of those realities unfold, especially up here because we had the unique situation in that middle week of March when the pandemic was announced and, you know, cities started closing everything down. Reno had closed down all events at that point. And we had a storm that closed I-80 for over 24 hours. And so the panic buying had already started to deplete the shelves. And that was when you guys probably remember all of those um, shots on local news channels of the empty shelves. And it wasn't just a toilet paper, paper aisle. It was produce aisles. It was all of it. So we felt that a little bit more uh, succinctly. And our farm actually in March of 2020 ended up with this huge wait list to our CSA, which is kind of like a weekly subscription box, which at that point was already full. And we had an over 100 person wait list in a matter of like two or three weeks. Mm. Uh, so the awareness that came to the forefront of people's minds of how delicate our you know food security situation was really noticeable to us. And then certainly it was noticeable when we restarted the farmer's market. We had to close for a few weeks for that, you know, initial total lockdown. And then when we reopened it, seeing the surge of interest from people to come and meet their farmers and just support local in general, and probably also to just connect because it was such a traumatic time for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It was it really, I mean, in my, I don't want to use the word cool too lightly because it was also <laughs> tragic in a lot of ways, but it was really cool to see people wake up to, yes, like, 
buying local is not just a gimmick. Buying local isn't just about, you know, um, some greenwashing campaign to make it seem like it's better. And maybe sometimes it is, right? Especially if it's not legitimately like a locally produced or local family owned or whatever um, the product might be. But I think that A, circulating dollars within our community, and then B, helping to establish the types of businesses that you want to surround your community are really um, important topics right now. There's a wonderful wheat farmer uh, just about 45 minutes north of Reno uh, near Susanville, and they grow organic wheat and they mill it on site and they they actually bring it to the market through a wonderful sourdough baker <laughs> called Sincerely Sourdough. Not only is their wheat just like incredible to bake with and have has incredible flavor because it was literally milled the day before, but it also is a wonderful way to ensure that you would have wheat, assuming we, we had a shortage in that, which isn't that far of a, a guess, you know, that we could potentially have that with what's been going on. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's hard to imagine how farmers would first go to their loyal supporters for their goods when there's a situation where, you know, the demand has surpassed the supply. So that that's really the core of getting to know your farmer. But there's so many benefits beyond that and beyond just the wholesomeness of knowing the people and the personalities and the family behind your food, which is a luxury in itself. But um, I think that knowing how your food is grown. Like the thing is, is that if you're talking to a small farmer and you say, I'd love to come out to your farm, which we get all the time, you know, I've never heard a farmer say no to that. You know, they're excited about what they're doing. They're doing it because they love it. And Mm -hmm. so sharing that with others, you know, it might not be a yes in the middle of peak season (laughs) or it's like a (laughs) self-guided tour. (laughs) But um, yeah, yeah, I think that just being able to ask questions about like, well, how do you guys deal with, uh, you know, white fleas and what do you do about aphids and how do you fertilize your soil and all these different things that are really important questions if we're talking about human and ecological health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think the connection is a huge part of it. Of Like you mentioned, getting to just speak to someone who is growing the food and who knows the answers to the questions you might have. Feeling connected in a community around your food, I think, is a really important way just to to feel connected to your city in general and the people that are around you. The other question I had is also just kind of like the farming lifestyle. You mentioned that you've had kids since you started your farm. You are living and working the farmer life, which is not what most people, I think, in the modern world are doing. So can you just talk a little bit about what the differences are of having a family as a farmer and kind of what are you raising your kids to understand about the food that they eat and the planet that they live on? How is your interest in farming and sustainability affected your family and your your life outside of just the work on the farm? Yeah, you know, our life is really in, intertwined with our farm, maybe more so than your average farmer, uh, because we live in a tiny home on our farm. We're a micro farm and we live in a little micro mansion. <laughs> <laughs> we call it a micro mansion because we, we sold our house in uh, Reno before we moved out there. And Ironically, our tiny house, which is like a little over 500 square feet, has a bigger kitchen than the house that we (laughs) sold. So it kind of felt like an upgrade. But um, our kids are still really young. And so we can kind of get away with their little loft rooms. But soon they'll probably be too tall to stand in them. And so we'll have to find a different solution. (laughs) But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, because we live in a tiny home, we are outside a lot. And that was a really big intention. We, we had kind of different options about how we wanted to establish ourselves near our farm. And 
yeah, just being forced outside when it's not always ideal weather, which to be honest, I mean, we have sunshine over 300 days a week or days a year rather up here. And so even when it's windy or a little bit chilly, if the sun is out in the high desert, it can feel pretty balmy, (laughs) especially when Mm -hmm. you're used to being out there all the time when it's pretty cold. Farming with children is not necessarily something I recommend, um, especially starting a family at the same time, just because babies are, you know, way more hands-on than even like a three-year-old. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it happens a lot because a lot of, you know, younger farmers are kind of at that starting a family age. And um, it's been really beautiful. I mean, for us, our evolution into understanding the plant world more is very much parallel. It's paralleled our evolution as humans, as parents, which is a very humbling and beautiful process (laughs) that you grow into of just complete surrender. And that's actually the reason why we chose Prema as the name of our farm. Both Zach and I have a background with yoga, both of us having spent a lot of time in India. And prema is a Sanskrit word that means the supreme love or unconditional love, the kind of love that you give in a complete surrender, a space of not expecting anything in return. It's all just a gift. And that's how farming feels a lot of the time that, you know, things that pull through incredible weather swings and, you know, seeds that you plant not knowing what's going to come up. Um, It is just a complete and beautiful and poetic surrender. And parenting is a lot like that because you're Mm -hmm. you're really giving your all and and you're just not quite sure. Um, what's going to come back. And a lot of times what comes back isn't always pretty, (laughs) but you just, you know, of course you're going to continue to pour yourself into it out of a space of really pure love. It's, it's been an interesting and, um, and challenging and messy and beautiful journey. And I don't think Zach or I would change any of it. That's excellent. So let's talk about the farmer's market too. So we talked a lot about the farm, but the other half of this whole piece is getting the food to the people. So you started the Riverside Farmers Market, which has been really successful. I live like basically across the street from it. So it's been a pretty common occurrence for me to just like pop over for a loaf of bread uh, on my Saturday morning, those kind of things. So can you talk a little bit about how farmers markets function to bring this kind of local produce to people in a way that is accessible, that is enjoyable to shop at? Kind of what was your thinking? I know you mentioned you you had the the produce and you needed a place to sell it. So that was kind of the origin of the farmer's market, but it's grown over the years. So can you just talk a little bit generally about farmer's markets as a, a place to get our food? Yeah. So I think a, a lot in the vein of what we were just discussing about getting connected with the farmers, there's also this opportunity to get connected with your bakers like you are or your local artisans or makers and culinary entrepreneurs, et cetera. We did not intentionally create that space. Um, once it kind of got going and all of the paperwork was done and, and it seemed like we had the green light to really run with the market because we kind of got it up and going in like less than four weeks just because of the um, crunch that we were in for the season. And then once we had it established that first year, any first year market doesn't know if it's going to succeed. It's such a delicate balance between luring enough vendors there, you know, with the with the promise and confidence that you're going to be able to lure enough shoppers to support them, especially starting in fall. So we were a year round market starting in October, heading into what ended up being one of the heaviest blizzard <laughs> winters <laughs> of the like previous five years. And so we had a lot of literal whiteout days um, at the market. 
which really formed quite a diehard crew of beginning vendors. And yeah, I can't say that we saw how beautiful of a community that it was going to grow into. However, I will say that in the beginning conversations that we were having with the city um, about doing it at McKinley Arts Center, Zach and I, and Zach in particular, was like, oh, this would just be so beautiful on Riverside Drive. And I instantly saw what he was saying and, and I, felt, I felt the same. And so we were really um, committed to McKinley Arts Center because we thought it would be a perfect place to grow into that vision, which we've been kind of dabbling with with our larger events when we closed down Riverside Drive. And then it wasn't too long before we decided we wanted to make it a nonprofit uh, and have it be kind of more of a community-driven event. You have a lot more collaboration opportunities as a nonprofit, not to mention that you can do a lot more social endeavors um, through grants and whatnot. As I was beginning the paperwork to form it into a nonprofit, uh, and I was, you know, writing the mission statement, all these different things, and I thought, I this nonprofit already exists. I know the people who started this nonprofit, <laughs> and so I reached out to Tom Stilly, and uh, it was really fortuitous timing because they had kind of gotten into a lull with their board, and they were even. Con- considering um, closing the nonprofit down because they just didn't have any active projects. And so they were really excited to pair with the Riverside Farmers Market. And it was this wonderful infusion of their energy and vitality to um, to something that I had been carrying mainly on my own because I, I was really doing a lot of the farmers market stuff and Zach was carrying the bulk of the farm stuff because our babies were so small. So I couldn't often bring them to the to the uh, beds while planting was happening, et cetera. And yeah, so that was a really wonderful collaboration that occurred uh, right before the pandemic, actually. Since then, again, because the pandemic really spurred that interest in not only just shopping with local um, businesses, but also for people to start their own passionate project or leap from their maybe corporate nine to five into something they'd been dreaming about for years. We saw a huge influx on both sides for shoppers coming to the market and for uh, new vendors coming out of the woodwork. And that's really what has placed us where we are today. It's just this really lovely coalescing of passionate farmers, makers, and bakers, and a really supportive and friendly community that continues to show up, even when there's 30 mile per hour winds like last week. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was going to ask what makes a good farmer's market. I think you just kind of answered that. It's this combination of a variety of local businesses. I had the Golden Owl Bookshop folks on the podcast last year, and like that's not a farmer thing. You know, that's just a small local bookseller but it's such a great addition to the farmer's market where there's just a variety of different things. And it is, like you said, these small businesses that are maybe using the farmer's market to to get a foothold, to introduce themselves to the community. And I think that's a, a great experience to be able to walk around and see this diversity of local entrepreneurs reaching people. You have this great variety of vendors and the focus on the the local food. Besides Prema, there's obviously a focus on the food there. Can you talk about some of the other farms that you've partnered with for the farmer's market to make sure that it's got a good variety of produce and that you're providing a lot of options for people? Yeah, that's a great question because one of the things that kind of makes our farmer's market a bit different from what you're going to find elsewhere in northern Nevada is that we will only accept Uh, local farms. And we will make exceptions on that for items that are not available locally. Like if like we can't get strawberries, for instance, to the market, then we will um, hand select a farm, which we did in this in California, uh, in the strawberry growing regions. And the same is true for some other products that we bring in. 
But in general, we're looking for producers who are super local because our intention as a nonprofit is to actually help establish a local food shed that is vibrant and abundant and actually can meet the needs of the community, which we are far from doing. And also to ensure that those growers are raising animals or growing food in a sustainable way. They don't technically have to be certified organic, but if they're not, we will actually go and do a a site visit to confirm that they're using practices that are in alignment with um, a sustainable philosophy. So we have seen some really wonderful producers come forward. Some of the new ones that came up in just the last couple of years include Biggest Little Mushrooms, uh, Biggest Little Microgreens, (laughs) Uh, let's see, Rocket Farms. They're on a little break right now. And what else? Ripcord Farm actually is starting this year. Bramble Farm started last year. I'm going to end up forgetting some because I'm, I'm riffing right now, but um, I should be looking at my sheet. <laughs> Last time I counted, I think it was eight new farmers or food producers, meaning like growers of mushrooms or microgreens uh, come up. Now, it's not to say that they all stay around. Uh, sometimes they'll go and buy land somewhere else or, you know, just the life changes in general. They might sell their business. Just recently, Washoe Valley Mushrooms had to sell their business for health challenges. And so, you know, the ebb and flow within the agricultural community is just like any other industry. But what's really wonderful is that we're seeing just a general upward trend towards an interest in growing food, a commitment to growing food, meaning that they actually invest in the infrastructure and become, you know, a local farm. And um, yeah, and then the continued interest in the support from the community, which will just naturally uh, pull more aspiring farmers out of the fringe and into production. And so, yeah, you definitely see the dwindle in the wintertime. And that's one of our goals at Prema Farm is to help teach local farmers how you can be productive in the wintertime, as daunting as it sometimes can be. But it really is a healthier business model to be growing Mm -hmm. 12 months out of year instead of just like four or five. I think that over the next five years, we're going to continue to see more and more farms come into the fray, uh, you know, between October and May in that cold season. And in the meantime, our nonprofit runs Reno Mobile Market, which is a project that we began to kind of create a placeholder for local producers. So one of the challenges that farmers markets have is, you know, you, you can't really have a successful summertime market without peaches or strawberries or those quintessential summertime fruits. Mm-hmm. But A, um, if, you know, if you want to bring a producer over who's going to bring those fruits, oftentimes if they're growing, especially sustainably, which we would require, they're going to have a diversified uh, spectrum of what they're growing. But we don't want them to compete with high desert farms. We want the high desert farms to thrive in the high desert community. And it's a lot Mm -hmm. easier and it's actually a lot less expensive to grow various vegetables that you can grow up here, like radishes or greens, et cetera, in the maritime climate of the western foothills or actually on the coast of California, where a lot of these farms come from, than it is at 5,200 feet. And so... Yeah, to kind of work through that challenge, Reno Mobile Market serves as a placeholder and brings in hand-selected farm products that will basically um, 
they resell those right from those farms to the consumers until there's a local producer who will bring those items on. And so, mm. for instance, if Bramble Farm will start to, you know, start producing, well, I don't know after this last spring storm if this is going to happen, but some apples or various orchard products that we would typically bring in from Grass Valley, then we would stop bringing those items in and we would bring them in through a local producer. But see, what's challenging is that if you're a, a farmer's market manager, and you're allowing like a California producer to come in to fill a gap of production that we don't have up here. Over a season or two, you have a really nice relationship with that farmer and you recognize that their business model is relying on this income stream from your market. And that's mm -hmm. what we see in a lot of our more established markets here is that they have these really wonderful relationships with these California farms who have supported this region with fresh food from their California farm for over two decades. And there was really no choice back then. There were no local farms 20 years ago that were producing diversified vegetables. And so do you just tell them they can't come anymore? You know, it's it's a difficult position to be in. And so it's mm. one of the reasons why we were really firm in our creation of the market that we would not be inviting in any um, faraway farms that a local producer could potentially fill that gap of. You know, there are, again, some products that we don't anticipate any local producers to ever, ever provide in quantity. You know, orchards have a historically hard time up here because of our really unpredictable frosts in the spring, mm -hmm. which unfortunately we all got a taste of this last week when a lot of our peaches, peach blossoms <laughs> fell off, etc. But yeah, I think that uh, as we continue to move forward and support just the generation of a local food shed in general, we'll see more interesting innovations in how to grow different food. Uh, and I, strange foods up here. I mean, there's a gentleman in Colorado who's successfully growing banana plants at like 8,000 feet. Hmm. So there's, there's a lot of hope for innovation in the world of small diversified farming, but um, it just takes a lot of interest and you have to have the interest on the consumer side grow at around the same rate as the interest on the farmer side, or otherwise people get discouraged. Right. That makes sense. And it, that is part of the reason that you have this kind of placeholder like to fill in the gap too. that you need people to want to come to the market, even if there's not a local producer for everything that they're looking for yet. Right. So it's building yeah. up this demand while you're also kind of slowly figuring out how to provide for it. Very much so. And it's not just us. I mean, there's Reno Food Systems, there's DFI, there's so many different collaborative agencies or organizations that are trying to inspire new farmers and to help evolve this food shed up here. And and people that have been here long before us, like the Litzingers and so forth, and the co-op has doing, been doing amazing work for over 10 years. So it's just, you know, we're just kind of playing our small role in trying to help with that momentum, right? To help get people aware and interested and kind of hooked on the flavor of local food because getting mm -hmm. a freshly picked melon in the peak of summer is nothing like getting you know, a, a melon from anywhere really that has been traveled. I mean, it, fresh from the vine is unlike anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about pricing and kind of accessibility, because one of the perceptions that I and I think a lot of people have of farmers markets is that they're expensive and it is often more expensive for some of the things that you're buying at the farmer's market than at your local grocery store. The reason for that, I understand, is because there's a lot of labor going into it. I think a lot of our local farmers are taking better care of the people that are working on these farms or they are the actual farmers themselves than some, you know, big agriculture that is using um, really exploitative labor practices. So I understand where some of the 
the cost inputs go into that create a little bit more expensive experience at the farmer's market. Can you talk a little bit just about the what we get out of that, kind of like what we get for the extra money that we're spending on our local produce uh, or how to find that right balance to make sure that the things that are being provided at farmer's markets are still accessible, that there's some, you know, that it's equitable, that there's access for people to enjoy the results of these local farms without it being so expensive that it's limited. Like, how do we expand this food access to as many people as possible? Yeah, I think food access is such an integral topic when you're talking about local food and because it inherently carries, well, when you're talking about local food that's grown in a sustainable way, it inherently carries a higher cost because the costs are no longer hidden. So Mm -hmm. cheap food hides the actual cost of growing food, right? Mm -hmm. If you're spraying your huge crops with, Uh, synthetic fertilizers and synthetic pesticides, and that's running off into our waterways and getting caught in our airways. We all pay the price of that cumulatively. And not to mention on the other end of that, and from from a um, nutritional standpoint, one of the soil scientists that we follow, who's revolutionized our practices on our farms, probably the most pivotal move that we made on our farms was following this soil scientist's advice on balancing micronutrients. So the health that we saw in our plants as a result of that was the biggest change that we have seen since we began farming in terms of creating an immune system or a resilience within our plants that allowed us to step away from any attempts at mitigating pest pressures, et cetera. One of the statistics that he shared in uh, his main book is about how much more nutritious food that is grown in healthy soils is compared to conventionally grown, even conventionally organically grown produce. So produce that is grown in soil that's essentially dead. And it was 70% more nutritious. And so if we're going to talk about what we're getting for a slightly higher price point. So for instance, you're going to find organic kale from a large mega farm at Whole Foods or at natural grocers or wherever else, usually for around $2.50. Our farm sells it for $3. And sometimes when we're harvesting a lot of it, we'll sell it for two fifty dollars also. But the difference between our operations and the cost of how we're farming on our local community and our local airways and waterways is very different. And then, yes, the price of how we pay our labor uh, is very different. And so like our minimum wage is $15 an hour for our staff and up. I often like to turn the conversation of why is organic food so expensive to a conversation about why is conventional food so cheap and Mm. reframe a very distorted perspective that we have about food and cost of goods in general. I mean, we were all, for the most part, listening to this, raised in a faster, cheaper, you know, higher amount, just this intense capitalism situation where our understanding of the cost of goods, the cost of production is really distorted. And that's certainly true within the food system because we have this added layer of distortion from subsidies that make some of the least nutritious foods in our in circulation the least expensive or the most accessible. And so, you know, what other way to describe a food system that the cleanest foods are the um, ones that the least people can enjoy? And so some of the ways that we try to combat that in terms of like creating more food access at the market are what I like to call upside down subsidies or subsidies that are kind of coming through the back door. And those are in the form of grants like our double up food bucks program and SNAP, which is basically um, food stamps. And so that's, you know, assisting the people who qualify for those programs who are kind of at the lowest uh, social 
economic sector to get a lift up so they can reach into the the organic pot as they should be able to. Because I think mm-hmm. that clean food, I mean, who doesn't believe that clean food is a human right? It's our natural birthright. And we're trying to restore land back to what it should have been when we came into this world. And it's certainly how we want to leave it for our children and theirs. So yeah, food access is so complicated when we talk about how to approach it because we're, we're trying to fix such an intensely broken system um, from the bottom up. But I think that there are some really important topics that are interwoven in the food access conversation um, that have to do with how we prioritize our budget. Food addiction is a huge topic within that because sometimes we're, we're so addicted to processed food that our, almost our, our sense of um, self-worth is intertwined uh, with the things that we're actually consuming. And so, yeah, it's an interesting and nuanced conversation and it, and it changes from person to person what their priorities are. But I think that I think that one of the most powerful things to witness is to see someone um, watch their their own sense of their own body, like their own vitality and health transform when they not just switch to whole foods, but to like nutrient dense foods. I'm not just talking about, you know, swap in like Cheetos for organic corn tortilla chips or something like that. (laughs) But instead, you know, moving towards nutrient dense, vegetable centric, cook at home kind of lifestyle where processed oils and processed foods become very much the fringe of your diet. And I've experienced that. My partner has experienced that. We were both raised on fast food. And when we woke up to how different we felt on whole foods, and especially when you're talking about like freshly harvested foods, it just continues to reveal itself to be a powerful shift. And I think empowerment is really the only way to describe how real food can change your life. Where do you see the farmer's market going? You mentioned that there's been some of these tests of closing part of the street. You've had some bigger events. There was the local food fair last year that was uh, amazing. It was one of my favorite things last year. So where do you see the farmer's market going? What are the plans for the future? Yeah, so our hope is definitely to stretch on to Riverside Drive as our home in the future. But that's many years away. Our friends actually run the farmer's market that's the longest running in Reno over at California Avenue in front of CVS. That's the one on uh, Saturdays in the summertime. When they plan to retire, we plan to help them with that market. And then we'll remain on Saturdays too and do a sort of merger of those markets. In the meantime, we're staying on Thursday evenings in the summertime and Saturday mornings in the cold season. And we do like to dabble with those long uh, stretches on Riverside Drive with the bigger events like the local food fair. And that is unfortunately on hiatus this year, but we are doing the Mother's Day event, which is going to be very similar uh, in the morning on May 7th. That's a taste of things to come for sure. I think that every you know, attractive city has that pinnacle farmer's market that is the hub of community and eclectic artisans and definitely a local food scene, be it chefs or farmers, um, hopefully collaborating. And so, yeah, that's definitely the intention as we grow forward. And we're um, kind of practicing, you know, that layout and the logistics Mm -hmm. behind that with each large event that we put on. I mean, what's really fun to see as the market matures a little bit year by year is how many different people come into the workings of it. So this summer, for instance, there's this wonderful group coming in to bring the series of art classes that will explore everything from like movement art to painting to basket weaving, et cetera. 
The same thing on the music front. We have different music groups coming in to do kind of collaborative, you know, drum circles or music groups, et cetera. And so, yeah, that, that's been a dream of mine to just watch more involvement from people who are passionate about bringing their gifts forward to the community in a generous way. You know, I think that that's a really important aspect of what we're doing or what we always want to do at the market is just allow for people to come and enjoy the beauty of our community in a way that doesn't mean you have to pay to play, right? You can come and enjoy a free yoga class. You can come and hang out and play. Let the kids relax and play with each other while you catch a meal and take a break by the river. And so, yeah, the community cultivation aspect is such a such an important issue when you talk about developing any type of community-supported agriculture system. And so, yeah, that alignment is slowly revealing itself. Um, we're going into our fourth year right now. And so we have, I hope, many, many years to grow into our full vision. But Reno is ripe for it. People are excited about having a place to go, especially in the wintertime and could connect mm-hmm. with their, you know, their friends and then their their favorite vendors. Yeah, no, I think you nailed it with saying that it is the right time and the right place for something like the Riverside Farmers Market. I think that I have found more and more people seem to be interested, like I mentioned earlier, in local food. And I like that you mentioned all these activities too, because I very often will go over to the farmer's market and do nothing other than get a cup of coffee at the coffee stand, but I'll walk around and chat with people. And uh, I love that there's activities that there's a very social and community oriented vibe. That's not just about, oh, I'm going to buy this thing and then go home. It's where you see people that you know. It's where you run into people that you are connected to in other ways in the community. So I think that having that kind of central hub, almost like what the mall might have been 20 years ago, like malls are all dead. But the idea that you can go to a place where you have local business people and the people that you know, and it's a place that you can hang out kind of like as an adult, it's like the grown up healthier version of like the gathering space. I really appreciate that about it for sure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. One of the things that you did bring up when we had coffee the other day was the way that you kind of market the farmer's market and how that has changed. One of the things you talked about is that originally the focus on like the ethical consumption and the environmental impact was something that you cared a lot about and that was something you really wanted the focus or the branding to be around. That's not why necessarily they're going to the farmer's market. So changing kind of how you present it can bring people in that might not be sold on your original message, but they get the benefits once you kind of get them in the door. And I think that's an interesting thing is how we, the way that we consume food, it's a cultural thing. It is, it is shaped by what we think is the right way to participate in our society, the right way to spend our money, the right way to take care of our bodies. Your job as a farmer's market, as a farmer part of it is the marketing is selling is like making that cultural change, making that uh, shift in people's attitudes and understanding where they're coming from originally. So I guess, I mean, there is a question in there of like, how do you, how do you reach people? So you put the market together, you have all of these great things that people want, but part of what you are also doing is it's sales. It's like, it's marketing. It is reaching people where they are. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the presentation or the branding or the, you know, how you want your farmer's market to represent itself to reach the most amount of people and have the most good? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question because it is really important when you're trying to create an inclusive market to be inclusive in 
the vendors that you're bringing in and the way that you're marketing them and the people that you're trying to reach through the various avenues that you're marketing in. But it's funny because at the same time, we're limited by, you know, standards of, I guess you could call it philosophy, that guide our nonprofit from its core, which we think have undisputable benefits for everyone involved, even though they might sometimes carry a higher price tag now up front, but maybe a smaller one or a non-existent one down the line. So our approach is very much to talk about those different aspects. You know, I mean, some people are coming because they align with that philosophy. And so we'll touch on that. And other people are coming because they really just enjoy the community aspect, or there's maybe a couple vendors there that they're really excited about their products. And so we'll highlight those. I think that as we evolve and our vendor lineup continues to become increasingly eclectic, that will naturally pull in the crowd that, you know, they are already entwined with. Um, and we have seen that actually in the last year in particular, just a, a real diversification of the people who are coming, a, a huge age stratification of the people who are coming each week. And that really does change. We have like a total different crowd that comes on our Thursday nights in the summertime versus who shops with us in our Saturday mornings. And that's really enjoyable. Our vendors actually really enjoy the contrast throughout the year for that. As we evolve, again, it just comes back to that community collaboration piece. And that, that includes the vendors and them bringing their own networks within. But because we're a nonprofit and we're largely volunteer run, it's, it demands collaboration and it benefits from collaboration because the end result is, you know, diversity in, in products to the extent that they are um, – you know, within the guidelines that we've set forth from the beginning. And, you know, I mean, it's not like every single thing that you're going to find within the market is incredibly nutrient dense, healthy and organic, right? Like treats exist. And I think that that's a total <laughs> healthy and balanced nature of life. It's not like we're all on a juice fast 100% of the time. <laughs> and so, right. you know, and, and the market represents that. And, it, you know, it's a mature place for people to enjoy responsibly whatever their heart desires. But at the core of it, it's the goal of it is to help foster a food shed. And so by creating a really vibrant community around sustainable farmers who are growing within the Great Basin or growing within the Truckee Meadows even, we are almost by default or as a side effect helping to establish a food shed that we might be really grateful for. <laughs> I mean, we already are really grateful for it, but, you know, if, if food security actually became uh, a forefront topic, the way that other news stories are capturing our attention right now, yeah, I mean, the farmers are going to be a really pivotal part of our community. And so, you know, just trying to be proactive in that way while we're having a good time together is, you know, a win-win situation in our opinion. Excellent. So the farmer's market is on Saturdays in the winter. It's a Thursday nights in the summer. The Mother's Day event is this coming Saturday. Uh, where else can people find you? How can they connect with you either online on social media? Are there other events or things that you want people to know about and attend? Uh, basically, how can people uh, get involved and get in touch? Yeah, definitely. Well, we are on online at renofarmersmarket.com. And you can also reach out to us on our Instagram or Facebook profiles. And you can also just drop by the market and say hi. We're usually at our market info booth or we're walking around taking pictures or walking around with a clipboard. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, we are always open to community ideas and inspirations. We're always welcoming new vendors. And our goal is just really to be that nexus of 
health and community and family fun. And so that's evolving because of everybody's input. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really great to talk to you, learn about farming and the farmer's market. It's a really, I think, valuable thing for the community. And I'm so grateful that we have that, that we're kind of have developed this central community place where I get to see a bunch of people that I know and all of these local vendors coming together. Uh, Very grateful for it. So thank you for coming on the show to let me know more about the behind the scenes. Yeah, thank you, Connor. And I love your podcast and appreciate the community you're cultivating right here. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of Renoites and extra special thanks to my guest, Casey Crispin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, really enjoyed learning about farming and the farmer's market here in Reno. Again, if you have any suggestions for guests, please reach out. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R at Renoites.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, help spread the word. It is really challenging to let everyone know that this podcast exists. It's a lot of fun to do. I really enjoy meeting people who listen to the show. I was just at the Punk Rock Flea Market at The Generator and met a bunch of listeners. It was super fun. But there are tons of people in Reno who don't even know that this show exists. So if you enjoy it, please be sure to share, post, let your friends know about it, and generally help me spread the word. I much appreciate it. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. 